Welcome to the Redemption Tempe podcast. I'm Josh Butler, one of the pastors here. I'm joined by Ricardo Stewart, our lead pastor, as well as a good friend of ours, Eric Knox. Eric, welcome. Hey, what's up, fellas? Yeah. How you doing, Josh? Doing good, doing, man. It's good to hear your voice, man. It's uh, yeah, Eric and I, a little backdrop. Eric and I pastored together uh, back in Portland, Oregon, at a church called Imago Day Community. And Eric, you are a man of many talents. You have been a pastor for years, but also, man, coaching basketball is a huge part of your story. And particularly in this season, Hala mentors, uh, man, mentoring uh, with youth in in the city. And I'm curious, could you just be helpful to kind of set up, get, get a little window into some of the stuff you're running after in this season. Can you give us kind of the, the quick snapshot of Hall of Mentors, what, what that is and, and what you're about with that? Well, in USA Today, uh, they deem Portland as the whitest city in America. And true to form, I, 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 I would validate that statement because I've been here 24 years. I've seen gentrification and how it's displaced black and brown kids, particularly in the area that we're in, which is East Portland. And so uh, East Portland, about 10, 12 years ago, a lot of gentrification happened. A lot of fam- black and brown families got pushed out there and, and the school districts reached out to me because they were um, not prepared for sort of this influx of black and brown families coming to their school because they didn't have any um, you know, teachers, educators, educators. Uh, uh, counselors, anyone that looked like these kids or can speak to their experience. So when I went out there, I went out there actually to just give them some input. And then we fortified a partnership out of me just going there to give them some input. And uh, and so we just, you know, Hollow Mentors became this organization that was about culturally responsive mentorship for black and brown kids. So we started going to the college campuses throughout the city, University of Portland, Portland State, Warner Pacific, and Multnomah. And we were looking for black and brown first generation students. And man, it was like opening the floodgates. A ton of these kids wanted to jump in, be a part. So we just started matching kids that college students that were black and brown. They came out of the same experience of the kids that we were serving in East County. And that's how Holly got off the ground. Man, that's awesome. Well, just for for speaking firsthand as someone who, you know, uh, was was just moved from Portland about a year ago, the reputation and influence of Hala amongst like the, the, the school system, the city leadership, uh, churches in the area and all. It's just phenomenal to see the work that is happening there and grateful for your leadership and all that, Eric. Thanks, man. man, well, we are in a series on the book of Exodus. And every week we're kind of using this podcast to supplement uh, the, the, the sermon for from Sunday and kind of the passage, the part of Exodus that we are in. And this week we're in Exodus 2, where we see Moses and the life of Moses. He grows up amongst, uh, an, well, he is from an oppressed people and he grows up though in Pharaoh's palace. And I can imagine there's got to be this conflict for Moses as he sees his people being mistreated. Uh, I even sense there's probably a sense of a, a call to be an agent of deliverance or at least to advocate for. Uh, we see this in the climax of Exodus 2 when he intervenes on behalf of uh, one of his Israelite brothers being mistreated and all. And so there's got to be this tension for Moses where he has a foot in both worlds. He's uh, not fully Israelite in one sense. Uh, he is, but he's growing up in the palace. And so there's this 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 space, this distance uh, from the experience in many ways. And he's not fully Egyptian either because he has uh, this foot in, foot in both worlds, both in uh 
in the palace and the king's palace, so to speak, as well as in uh, his people. And we thought this could be a good chance to look at some of the tension that I think Moses experiences that we also see today that I think many uh, minority leaders can often feel in a majority culture context, um, having a foot I'm sure it can feel like in both worlds. And so, uh, Eric, we were excited to kind of bring you on, someone who I've learned a ton from in this arena. I know Ricardo and I both uh, talk about you often. And I just wanted to set up a chance for you guys to talk a bit um, together. What are some of the tensions and pressures that minority leaders face, um, particularly whether in the church or in broader, uh, the city at large, uh, leading in a majority culture? I think for me, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois said, um, um, the struggle for minorities, and particularly African-Americans, is living in America with a double consciousness, right? Like, like America systemically, racially, uh, is very westernized, Eurocentric in its thinking. And we are part of America, but not fully American. I, I think I was at a conference, and I'll borrow this phrase from actually you, Ricardo, um, you know, like African-Americans aren't, don't feel fully American, but they don't feel fully African. They have a history of their own just because of slavery and oppression. And so they find their story somewhere between African and American, which is the hyphen. How do we live in that hyphen uh, as, as a people? And so I think some of the tensions I know, like trying to navigate whiteness and white spaces, is how do I retain my sense of blackness in a white world? Like, how do I navigate those spaces, feed my family, do my ministry effectively, live out the kingdom of God uh, as a black man in, in white evangelical spaces and yet retain myself, right? Like not commit cultural suicide. Uh, and, you know, those are always rubs that I have to wrestle with, right? Being, I think Jamie Foxx, Oprah Winfrey was interviewing Jamie Foxx and Oprah Winfrey said, Jamie, what is your biggest fear? <laughs> And Jamie said, you know, thought long and hard. And he said, you know what my biggest fear probably is? He goes, not being funny to black people. Mm. And I got it in my work. Oh, my gosh. Mm. <laughs> Come on. You know, because <laughs> you know, he knows if he's funny to black people, he's funny to all people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And so what you don't want to do is lose your relevancy to the culture uh, you were born out of and shaped by. And you know if you can stay authentic or in, in hip-hop slogan or slang, if you can just keep it real to your own culture, you know you can keep it real to all the other cultures that you serve. All right. So listen, in that same that same lane, right? So <laughs> since we're throwing out pop culture, Jay-Z says game recognize game and you looking familiar. So basically when I first met Eric, um, Eric came in uh, town. I had heard about Eric through Tyler Johnson, and he was like, I think you're really going to connect with this guy. He's from L.A. You're both from L.A. He, you know, played college sports in the Pac-10. You guys got that. And he goes, I think you're just going to you're going to connect with him. Me and Eric sat down with Tyler at Four Peaks here in Tempe after Eric had done some training and whatnot. And I remember going, man, finally, somebody who was speaking my language and my tone, I had this you know, quote unquote, acts, acts two kind of moment, but not in the terms of converging towards Christ, but a moment of going, wow, there are other black men and black people in this space that I find myself navigating in. And Eric's been that for me. And there is the, like, what he just said is the experience I would say of 
a lot of African-Americans and a lot of people of color in general. Um, That sense of going like Moses, Moses knows that he is Hebrew. He knows it. He looks Hebrew. His hair is like Hebrew. He's got Pharaoh's people in their king. You know, Pharaoh's daughter adopts him and, you know, everybody wants to touch his hair and everything else. (laughs) (laughs) But yet he he's he's raised in a particular culture and a particular area that is far more like the Egyptians. And yet he can't help but look out and go, but those are my people. And he doesn't know what to do. And to the point where he tries to jump in, you know, to quote unquote, be funny. That's not what his point was. It was to break up a fight. Next, you know, he kills a man. Um, and he, and yet that's who God uses to come back in to help his people. And I find that tension again, not just with African-Americans, but with a lot of people of color. So I had a conversation this week with the guy who works out of my gym and we were talking about this basketball documentary about Native American basketball players and what it's like raised, being raised on um, on the on the reservation. And he was like, man, I get this because he's Native American. He played college basketball. And I said, I said, hey, man, I'm going to go a level with you because we don't really go deep in the gym. And I said, I'm going to go a level with you. And I said, do you ever feel like there was a moment in your life where you had yeah. to turn down the dimmer switch of your culture and your narrative yeah. and your upbringing to fit in the dominant culture? And you were okay with it only for later to be like, wait a minute, I got to turn that dimmer switch back up. However, when you turn the dimmer, the dimmer switch, if you think about the dimmer switch light, if you, when you turn the dimmer switch back up about your culture, people around you who knew you as the, the low dimmer switch were like, oh man, this guy's changing. Oh, he's, he's not the same anymore. And you're like, no, this is who I've always been. I just have hadn't had the, the freedom or the space or even the security maybe to express it. Man, he literally stopped and was like, man, that might've been the realest thing I've ever heard of anybody that describes my life. And I'm like, he goes, man, how did you get that? I'm like, because I have the same conversations with my Korean friends. I have the same conversation with my black friends. And I said, the same conversation with a lot of people that find themselves living on the hyphen. Yeah. And, 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 um, sort of keep rolling with this pop culture theme, the best lyrics I've ever heard that blew my mind was by Biggie, where he said, birthdays was my worst day. Mm. Now I'm sipping champagne when I'm thirsty. And I love that line because that wasn't true to my experience. I grew up as a black man, middle class in Inglewood, which was South Central LA. And I had, um, I mean, I understood some of the black urban tougher pathologies in our community that you could succumb to if you weren't careful. And yet I grew up in a very robust black community where there were artists and bankers and doctors and attorneys and civil rights leaders. I mean, you, there was a fork in the road of blackness and it was rich. It wasn't monolithic. Hmm. Um, and I think sometimes what I have to fight is, is sort of the white perspective of how they put us in a particular category of blackness. And not fully understanding that blackness is rich, it's diverse, it's unique, um, uh, and it's stratified. And so I can only imagine looking at Moses's life, like he's caught in this tension because he's an expression of a different kind of Israelite. You know what I mean? Like he has, you know, some of that that uh, Egyptian culture like that he's had to navigate and it's had an impact on his life. And yet at the same time, um, he, you know, he understands the Israelite culture to a certain degree, even though he wasn't raised in it. And so I oftentimes find myself having to represent blackness in a way 
that white folks don't understand because they have put us in these certain categories and being able to break those, you know what I'm saying, uh, has always been a challenge in terms of just navigating in these white spaces that I work in as I mentor black and brown kids and advocate for them. Wow, that's powerful. Well, and I think often I hear, you know, people, you know, white people, others say like, well, I'm colorblind. Like, let's just ignore culture, right? But there's a big danger in that. Like you said, there's a richness to black culture, to Latino culture, to Korean culture, to wherever you come from. There's a richness that we lose out on. You keep that dimmer switch down. It's not no culture, but it's just majority culture is kind of implicitly a play, right? Um, but I also see a lot where, you know, it seems like in, in white spaces circles, people will say like, well, hey, keep the funny part or the music part of the order, but don't talk about what's happening to your people, right? And with Moses, it's interesting, like part of the conflict, it seems like you see in him is this connection to uh, uh, oppression and justice is happening. And it seems often today when the justice angle of conversation comes up, People often throw back, oh, you're just being divisive. And I'm curious, what would you say to that? Like just the the challenge that people will come back and say, oh, you're being divisive when um, themes of justice and all in our society come up. Let me let me let me jump in here real quick. And I'll personally. All right. So this is not redemption's view. This is just Ricardo Stewart as one person. <laughs> um, so what I feel like keeping consistent with Moses's story. Moses tries to jump in and in some ways he's rejected by his own culture mm. because they're like, you, you haven't really been in it like us. Mm. He has to leave because his, his culture that he's been raised in, he's done something that they're going to reject him. And so he, he, he moves to a suburban life. He uh, finds yeah. favor with this dude. He marries uh, a woman outside of his ethnicity and they, they have biracial kids and they're living a good life. They're living the good, you know, two story house. Uh, they got a basketball hoop. They got 2.5 kids and so forth. And, and then God calls him and he says, Hey, you're actually being set aside to step back into this context. Now yeah. it just wasn't a supernatural call by God. Like we, we don't want to leave God out of this. He calls him but God is always at work before he's at work in our lives when we like to call conversion spiritual part. God's always at work. And so much of our calling, no matter what our vocations is, are autobiographical. It's the way in which we're raised. On one hand, yes, God calls Moses. But on the other hand, Moses is the right person to go because of his upbringing. And he's got to now go back and, and, and be able to represent and communicate and have an understanding on both sides of the culture in a way in which both can get. And so to your question, Josh, what makes that so difficult is um, oftentimes people want the side of you or the expression of you that fits them best. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't even think sometimes it's uniquely selfish. It's just going, I really like that. And then what happens is that particular leader, in this particular case, the bicultural leader is treated as a commodity. And the particular commodity that is that people want are the ones that benefit something and doesn't really change or challenge them in too many different ways. And what happens in that particular leader's life is they get used to that um, to a point where they begin to burn out because they feel like they're not really expressing mm-hmm. who they fully are. And I think um, that happened the most with bicultural minority, especially African-American leaders leading in dominant culture spaces, particularly in the church. That happened the most um, 
during the last election. And yes. I, not to get into that, but that was that was the experience of a lot of us. And personally, that was by far the experience uh, that I had personally. And I don't know, Eric, what, what you would say to that. Well, I, you know, I would just say, you know, like we don't, I mean, the, the white evangelical church doesn't know how to talk about issues of race. Uh, we weren't, um, I, I was in a history class and the professor said, why is South Africa and even Germany, um, the professor said, you know, why, why has Germany not fully put that behind them, but they've, they've gone much further than America has done with the issues of slavery. And why has South Africa in literally 40, 50 years gone a lot further than America? He says, because they learned how to talk about these issues. And America doesn't. America denies these issues. And we deny them in the church. And oftentimes, I think our theology is shaped around what I call empire. Right. Um, and there isn't a theology from below that it represents uh, black and brown, dispossessed, marginalized people. And so oftentimes our theology has been co-opted by those in power. Right. And so a, a lot of the stuff that I was spoon fed as a black man, being a Moses in an evangelical circle, is listened to in the theology that was. Uh, that represented white folks, that represented dominance, that represented empire. I like uh, this blog by a, a guy that I read often. He happens to be a white guy. His name is Brian Zahn, who's a pastor in the Midwest. And he says, as the persecuted minority, um, I can no longer see myself, he says, I can no longer see myself as the persecuted minority pushed to the margins as a white guy, nor as a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt or the conquered Judea deported to Babylon, or even the first century Jew living under Roman occupation. I, as a white guy, am a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking about me. That's a problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what it makes. This is what makes the Bible so prophetic. We know that the history is written by winners. This is not true. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry. This is true, except in the case of the Bible. It's the opposite. This is the subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from a bottom-up perspective. Imagine a history of colonial America written by Cherokee Indians and African slaves. That would be a different way of telling the story. And that's exactly what the Bible does. It's a story of Egypt told by slaves, the story of Babylon told by exiles, the story of Rome told by the occupied. What about those brief moments when Israel appeared on top? In those cases, the prophets told Israel's story from the perspective of the peasant poor as a critique of the royal elite. Every story is told from a vantage point. It has a bias. The bias of the Bible is from the vantage point of the underclass. But what happens if we lose sight of the prophetically subversive vantage point of the Bible? What happens if those on top read themselves into the story, not as imperial Egyptians, Babylonians, and Romans, but as Israelites? That's when you get the bizarre phenomenon of the elite and entitled using the Bible to endorse their dominance as God's will. And that's what we see, Josh. That's what we see, Ricardo. Right, we can't have these conversations around race and justice and equity and access uh, because we don't have a theological context for it. Because we have been, our theology has been co-opted by, by empire, and we don't understand that we serve a God that is about, you know, heart transformation. But we're also about a gospel that is about 
transforming structures, right? Confronting mm-hmm. Egypt, confronting superpowers that oppress and marginalize black and brown people. And so that has always been a problematic thing, even in the circles that I run in. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, so it seems like one of the questions that comes up is like, well, where are we in the story? And we often want to immediately jump to like, well, we're uh, we're Israel in Egypt. We're the disciples in, you know, we're. but uh, what you're bringing up is like, well, yeah, but also we are Egypt. Like we are Babylon. (laughs) It was an important angle we miss of seeing ourselves like particularly as we're we're at the heights of the mightiest superpower on earth today. And particularly for those in majority culture, like recognizing uh, there are some cultural dynamics. We're we're both both the people of God in the midst of empire. And we are also empire in the midst of the people of God, you know? (laughs) And so I'm curious with that, could you maybe speak, um, Eric or Ricardo? I'm I'm curious, uh, you mentioned earlier, Ricardo, that uh, on the same hand, that being a minority leader in a dominant culture, there are some uh, privileges or perks that, that can kind of come, whether that's a commodification of here's things we want you to be, or just ways that as a minority leader, that the dominant culture can kind of treat you in ways that there can be certain privileges that come with that. Could you speak to some of the tensions and dynamics involved there? Yeah. Um, one of the things like Moses being raised by Pharaoh's daughter and Pharaoh's home is he knows how to eat at the King's table. Um, he knows how to fold this napkin. He knows how to, how to, you know, he's been to nice meals and so forth. He knows how to speak the language, etc. And that gives you an opportunity to know that culture. But then he also was weaned by his mother. That means he was nursed by his mother. That means and we don't know how long he was actually with his mom before she gave him back to his adoptive parents. And so there's this bicultural thing that's happening that he has, uh, you know, if you can use the word privilege, that he has ability to speak biculturally. And so for me, from an experience is I know how to be comfortable in a room full of white men and women or anybody in the dominant culture. And I equally know how to be comfortable with people who are in the subdominant culture, even if they're not people of my same ethnicity. Um, I've even found it in the last few years, even traveling around the country, it is amazing, or around the world, it is amazing how, whether they be people from Italy or people from Spain or people, uh, you know, from Africa, how even in the subdominant cultures that you're able to relate. So as it relates to leadership, um, I think the privilege that you have is the ability to have a level of empathy and understanding with two different people groups or multiple people groups to be able to see a way forward through the gospel that there is a possibility of reconciliation and not just reconciliation, but a way forward. And I think those experiences are gifts and graces of God. Awesome. Well, thanks, you guys. This has been a rich conversation. Uh, we, we've talked about some of the uh, where are we at now, you know, seeing uh, just kind of the state of some of the conversation today. But I'm curious if you could maybe just briefly, as we kind of land the plane here, speak to what would be your hopes or dreams for where this might go? You know, whether we're talking nationally or even just within our congregations here at Redemption, for you, Eric, at, at Imago and, and in Portland, uh, what would be kind of your hopes or dreams for like the next five to 10 years, the, the direction some of this conversation go both for the church and, and our broader culture? Yeah, well, I, I think my bigger, big, bigger than five to 10 years, my bigger mission, I think for the church is, you know, I, I was reading, an, I was in New York City about eight years ago, and then I picked up the New Yorker, and I was reading an article about this feminist. I don't even know her name, but she had just passed away, and I guess she was one of the architects of the feminist movement, and she had died, and a lot of big celebrities were there. 
And so this writer was kind of capturing the funeral and they interviewed somebody. I don't remember, but what stuck out to me was, uh, was when the writer asked this person, what kind of impact did she have on, on women in America? And, and this person said she was, she was willing to build and fight for a world that she knew she would never live in. And I thought that was powerful because I'm 30 years into my faith and I don't know how, how diverse, how much more diverse the church is from the day I got saved to where I am today. But I'm deeply and profoundly committed with a, a serious conviction to be about living out a gospel faithfully, uh, to create a multicultural heterogeneous world in the church uh, that I may never live in. Um, and that is my hope for the church, that they are so deeply convicted that even though they don't see the measurables, they don't see it uh, statistically growing, uh, but they're willing to be committed to that kind of work, even, even as it you know challenges their own faith and sensibility in how they live out and practice their, their, their Christianity. Mm. That's wow. good. Josh, can you repeat the repeat the question again? Yeah, just you know, we talked about some of the state of the conversation today, where we're at in, in the church and broader society. Uh, but just some of your, what would be your hopes and dreams for, say, the next five to ten years, or just looking forward? Where where would be some of your hopes of where we'd be going, whether as uh, churches or as a broader culture? Well, I want to look at the end goal here of what God was doing with His people. I mean, He was keeping a promise to Isaac, to Jacob, to Abraham, and so forth. But the promise wasn't just so that the Israelites would just be with God. The promise was that they would actually get into the promised land, as He told Abraham, and that God would bless all the other nations. And that word is ethne. So they were supposed to be, they were going to get redeemed out of and delivered out of Egypt. They were to end up in the promised land and to bear witness to who God was and what he's like to the other nations or ethnicities that they too would be able to enter into relationship with this covenant God. And then, and then as we see, as the Bible unfolds for that narrative is now God's people are being used for that reconciliation that we will actually reign with God in the new heavens and new earth, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. So the state of the church is one, so that we'd be aware of, uh, of what's happening and terms of like race and culture and gender and so many different things, but not just this, not just for the sake of deconstructing everything, that there has to be a level of reconstruction. That's something that's more beautiful, true, and right. And our, our culture uses the phrase utopia, but we actually look at, we call it the kingdom. Hmm. And so how is it, how is it that we can allow God to raise up men and women like Moses that will lead the charge within the church for all the good, right, true, and beautiful things that God has for his people and that that messy work, that being rejected as Moses is still going to be rejected by his people as we see the narrative unfold, and that we ourselves, like Moses, either because of sin or because of death, will not actually enter into, as Eric was talking about, that promised land. Hmm. But we play our part, and ultimately, as the biblical story unfolds, Jesus will truly usher us in exactly where we ought to be. And that's not a statement to say, so we stand in passivity. It's way more of going, he's the true leader, and we follow him and pick up our cross. And we realize that that image is a, an image of a bloody cross and an empty tomb, but has, has the, the hope of resurrection of what will be one day. 
Mm. I love, man. Well, I love Eric. The, the, the question you kind of asked and that you spoke to here as well, just now, Ricardo, is that, you know, are we willing to build and fight for a world uh, we know we might never live in, you know? And uh, that seems so true to Moses' life, who never actually enters the promised land, only sees it from a distance. And yes. yeah, as you said, Ricardo, that it's a it, it, when it's the kingdom though that's being embodied that that it is coming we will live in it one day it just might be on the other side of resurrection as well and that seems like a great a great spot to land on uh thank you guys so much for having this conversation um thank you to all our listeners everyone listening we'll be back with you next week uh thanks again eric for joining us today man really great having you on thank you for listening to the redemption church tempe podcast where we believe that all of life is all for jesus Redemption is one church in nine local congregations across the state of Arizona. Our vision at Redemption Tempe is to create disciples of Jesus who seek the reconciliation and restoration of Tempe. We would love for you to join us at one of our Sunday services at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 6 p.m. each week. You can learn more about us and how to get plugged into the life of our church by downloading our phone app called Redemption Church Tempe or on our website at tempe.redemptionaz.com. And lastly, we would love to hear from you. Please send any questions or feedback you might have about this podcast or our church by emailing tempe at redemptionaz.com. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.